Now take your Bible and turn to John chapter 19. John chapter 19. Starting there in verse 1. Then Pilate therefore took Jesus and scourged him. And the soldiers wove a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They began to come up to him and say, Hail, King of the Jews, and to give him blows in the face. And Pilate came out again and said to them, Behold, I am bringing him out to you, that you may know I find no guilt in him. Jesus therefore came out wearing the crown of thorns and a purple robe, and Pilate said to them, Behold the man. When therefore the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, saying, Crucify, crucify. And Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and by that law he ought to die, because he made himself out to be the Son of God. When Pilate therefore heard this statement, he was the more afraid. He entered into the praetorium again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. Pilate therefore said to him, Do you not speak to me? Do you not know that I have the authority to release you and I have the authority to crucify you? Jesus answered, You would have no authority over me unless it had been given you from above. For this reason, he who delivered me up to you has the greater sin. As a result of this, Pilate made efforts to release him. But the Jews cried out, saying, If you release this man, you are no friend of Caesar, and everyone who makes himself out to be a king opposes Caesar. When Pilate therefore heard these words, he brought Jesus out, sat down on the judgment seat of the place called the pavement, but in Hebrew, Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation for the Passover, and it was about the sixth hour. And he said to the Jews, Behold your king. They therefore cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? And the chief priest answered, We have no king but Caesar. So then he delivered him to them to be crucified. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we pray as we uh, approach uh, the text that you would uh, uh, work in our hearts and our minds uh, to contemplate the scene here that is uh, amazing to say the least that we think deeply as you have left your word for us to consider uh, your son our savior the lord jesus christ and what he is uh, preparing to endure and what he's even enduring now in the uh, text that we're looking at guide us direct us open our hearts to receive truth may we be transformed by our time in your word and may we grow again in our love for you our god and for christ our savior as we watch him approach the cross with this final interaction here with Pilate, and we pray these things in christ's name amen so as you know we're right in the middle of this text jesus is in his trial before Pilate. we're trying to gather as much information as we can obviously from john's gospel and his description but we're also pulling in other gospel accounts in order to gain even a greater understanding and have a bigger picture uh, of the events surrounding Christ as he's headed to the cross. Now, now remember, it's very early on Friday morning, just literally hours before the, the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ. On the day previous, Thursday, uh, uh, the Lord had celebrated the Passover with his disciples 
per the custom of the Jewish believers from the northern part of the country. We, we talked about that, how the northerners practiced on, on uh, Passover on Thursday and the southern people in the south on Friday and it had to do with how they calculated days. And it also helped to alleviate with two calendars some of the stress of the city with all the numbers of people uh, that, that were there for the Passover. Now, the Passover was obviously uh, remembered as God's deliverance. Uh, Israel had been uh, uh, um, celebrating the Passover for a long time. It was a demonstration or remembrance of God's physical uh, deliverance of the nation of Israel from the bondage of Egypt, and it was by a way of a blood sacrifice. It was via the, the Passover lamb that had its blood shed in order that those who believed what God said to be true, uh, those who were obedient to the command of God to take the the Passover lamb to shed its blood and cover the house, protect the, the house with its blood, God would pass over uh, that night and spare the life of the firstborn in that home uh, when the Lord saw the blood of the lamb applied to the doorposts and to the lentil. Now, we, of course, know that the Lord Jesus Christ, on the night that he was betrayed, he changed the Passover, again, Israel's longest-standing uh, celebration, from a celebration of God's deliverance from physical bondage in Egypt to a far greater uh, celebration of God's own sacrifice uh, through the sacrifice of Christ, uh, it would be a celebration of freeing men from the bondage of their sin. So the Lord celebrates the last legitimate Passover there in the night with his disciples, and then in an absolute uh, act of sovereignty, divine sovereignty, he turns the attention uh, from God the Father to him uh, in, the, in the first Lord's Supper. Uh, Matthew twenty six twenty six. While they were eating, Jesus took some of the bread, and after blessing, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And they had taken a cup and, and given thanks. He gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, uh, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And part of the Passover celebration of the Old Testament was that that sacrificial lamb had to be uh, spotless, right? It had to be without blemish, Exodus 12, 2. So the Passover lambs were taken. They were kept in the homes for three days of examination to make sure they were indeed spotless. And the Lord Jesus Christ, as I've told you, he was carefully observed also during his three-year ministry, and he was found to be spotless, without sin, without blemish. God's spotless lamb, absolutely innocent. And we saw that was the repeated claim by all those who carefully examined him, all those who looked uh, upon Jesus carefully and closely. Uh, when John saw him the first time uh, uh, upon his arrival, he, he saw him, he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, uh, John one twenty nine. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5-7 of Christ, He is our Passover Lamb who has been sacrificed. So Jesus, God's Son, God's beloved Son, whom the Father said that He was well pleased, this Jesus, He is the Holy Righteous One, He is the Spotless Lamb. Uh, again, everyone who looked upon him carefully and examined him uh, closely saw that he was absolutely innocent. It was confirmed by the one who betrayed him, Judas, who admitted that he had betrayed innocent blood. Uh, the Roman governor Pontius Pilate will repeatedly say of Jesus, I find no guilt in him. The thief on the cross next to Christ at the crucifixion, the centurion in charge of the crucifixion, the crowds at the cross uh, that witnessed the earthquake and other supernatural signs that accompanied the death of the Lord Jesus, they all declare that Jesus was an innocent man. He'd done nothing wrong. No guilt in him, no fault. So again, it's Jesus Christ, the spotless Lamb of God, the innocent, blameless one who will suffer and die for the sins of the world. The just for the unjust. 
Now, as I said at the top, and, and I've said several times, the, the scene here is spectacularly amazing. Jesus has done, again, nothing wrong, nothing worthy of death. Uh, he's committed no crime, yet uh, the Jewish religious leaders are committed to his murder. And the Romans are the ones that he, they are, are going to be used uh, to carry out the sentence uh, of death and execute the sinless one. But in spite of all of the evil of men and the wickedness of men and the evil of devils that are all surrounding this scene, uh, again, God is working out his sovereign purposes. God is working out his sovereignly ordained purposes for the redemption of mankind through the events of the cross by sending the perfect sacrifice, in fact, the only sacrifice, nothing but the blood, right? Didn't we sing of that? There's no other sacrifice. The perfect God-man, the Holy One, the Lord Jesus Christ, to stand in the place of the sinner, whereby God will pour out his wrath upon Christ as the substitute so he does not have to pour out his wrath upon us, those who look to Christ and believe. And that's exactly what I've been encouraging you. That's what John's been encouraging you. And we have to keep our focus on Christ. In spite of all the evils of wicked men and devils, the Lord Jesus Christ is the issue. Listen to me, always. In spite of all of the evils of wicked men and devils, the Lord Jesus Christ is the issue, always. In the text and in this world in which we live. We need to keep our focus on Christ, the infinite one, the eternal son of God who humbled himself, who left heaven and came to this world, born of a virgin, willing to put on our humanity, willing to suffer to be our substitute because he is the only one who could reconcile the relationship between us and God. And again, he has been sent into the world out of the love for the the father's love for us and he has come out of his love for mankind. Therefore, we need to keep our focus on Christ. Don't get caught up in looking at this evil world and the wicked men who think they are in charge of it. They are not. Look to Christ. Keep your focus on Christ. The way that you will be able to uh, 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 make it survive, whatever words you want to put there, uh, to triumph in the evil days in front of us is to have a better vision of Christ and, and to grow in your love for the person of Christ. That's the answer. Politics aren't going to solve the problem. Voting the right guy, quote-unquote, into office is not going to solve the problem. The issue is the heart. And the only one who conquers the human heart, the only one that can transform and change the heart, is the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Keep your focus on him. Evil men come and go. Christ remains forever. It's one of the reasons I read the book of Hebrews. He is the eternal one. Keep your focus on him. He has sat down at the right hand of the Father. It's done, finished. You need a greater picture, a greater vision, a greater understanding, a greater love of the person of Jesus Christ. That's what we all need. Keep our eyes on Christ. Now, you know, in the context of the story, uh, Jesus has appeared before Annas and Caiaphas. Uh, There there are no legitimate charges as they've been evaluated by these men uh, because, again, he's committed no crime. But again, they want him dead. The entire Sanhedrin is going to meet early in the morning and sentence him. They're going to convict, listen, they're going to convict the most innocent man who's ever walked the planet to death. They've already determined that outcome. But they don't have legal standing in the country as being occupied by the Romans. They don't have legal standing to do that in and of themselves, so they need Pilate to be their executioner. So they sent him to Pilate. 
They don't want Pilate to examine Jesus. The Jews just want Pilate to execute Jesus. But Pilate exercises his prerogatives as the governor and examines Jesus. And after he examines Jesus, uh, he finds no guilt in him. Now, Pilate knows that the Jewish religious leaders have delivered Jesus over to him out of envy. And Pilate really wants nothing to do with this whole situation. He wants nothing to do with Jesus. So Pilate makes several attempts to try to rid himself of Jesus, but he cannot. Pilate ships him off to Herod, who's the ruler over the uh, Galilean area at this time. And uh, Herod does nothing to free Jesus. He examines him and, and allows Jesus to be mocked and mistreated and then uh, treated with contempt. And then after his examination, he sends him back to Pilate. But in the meantime, Herod likewise finds nothing within Jesus that is worthy of guilt. He's done nothing wrong. He's done nothing deserving of death. So again, Pilate summons the religious leaders and tells them that this is the verdict. Jesus is innocent. Jesus is innocent. That's the verdict. Uh, He's done nothing worthy of death. But yet the Jewish religious leaders continue to press Pilate and demand that he is guilty, that he deserves to die. And all the time, Jesus stands in complete silence before his accusers. He does not offer a defense for himself like many men do. He just stands there in silence. And his standing there in silence speaks loudly to the reality of the fact that he is committed to doing the will of his Father. No one arrested Jesus against his will. No one is taking him captive against his will. No one is taking his life from him uh, against his will. The truth is he's laying himself down. He gave himself up. He's going to lay himself down as a willing sacrifice in order to be our substitute to bear the penalty that we cannot bear. That is the wrath of a holy God against our sin. We should probably stop and think about that for a moment. Because I think there is just, in our fallenness, there's an idea that I'm not that bad. In our fallenness, there's an idea that I can fix this thing between me and God if I just do enough right things. And God says the reality of the fact is nothing but the blood of Jesus can solve the problem. And God says the reality of the situation is your sin is so bad that it takes nothing short of the death of the sinless God, the incarnation of God, the person of the Lord Jesus Christ to atone from it to atone for it. There's nothing else, nothing for sin to atone except the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's how bad our sin is. Christ is willingly laying his life down, willingly going to be treated with great contempt and suffer greatly because of his love for mankind. Pilate's going to be forced into condemning an innocent man, which he doesn't want to do. But eventually he's going to cave into the pressure uh, of the Jewish religious leaders because he doesn't have enough courage to set Jesus free, although he has already declared Jesus not to be guilty. He feels the pressure of the Jewish religious leaders that are threatening him, uh, again, to take a a negative report back to Tiberius Caesar. But then all of a sudden, Pilate comes up with another idea. He, He thinks he's found his way out of the dilemma that he finds himself in that he doesn't want to be in. And we went through uh, this last time, but very quickly, look back up at uh, chapter uh, 18, verse 39 uh, of the previous chapter. Chapter 18, verse 39. Pilate says, But you have a custom that I should release someone for you at the Passover. Do you wish that I release for you 
Uh, Do you wish then that I release for you the king of the Jews? Therefore, verse 40, they cried out again, saying, Not this man, but Barabbas. And then John puts this little comment in there, Now Barabbas was a robber. So again, Pilate thinks he's found a way out of his dilemma. He knows that earlier in the week, the crowds had hailed Jesus as their Messiah and the triumphal entry. So Pilate thinks that he can play the religious leaders uh, against uh, the people by giving the people a choice between the innocent Lord Jesus, who he he knows is popular with the masses, uh, against this wicked criminal, a man named Barabbas. And by doing that, by standing these two men side by side, Pilate thinks that he can force Jesus to be released. Now, by this time, a large crowd is assembled outside the praetorium, and again, Pilate foolishly gives the crowd an opportunity to weigh in uh, on the situation, never imagining that the crowds would choose this infamous bad man, Barabbas, over the innocent Jesus. So again, Pilate, I think, chooses the worst of the worst uh, criminals, a a man who's an insurrectionist, a man who's a murderer, a man who's a notorious criminal, and he asks the crowd, do you want me to set the king of Jews free or Barabbas? Again, verse 40, they cried out, saying, not this man, not Jesus, but Barabbas. Now, again, Barabbas is a wicked man. He's in Roman custody. He's set to be executed. And this wicked crowd is going to choose him. Why? Because he's just like them. He's wicked. They're wicked. They're going to choose one who is wicked like them and going to reject the innocent Lamb of God. Now, I told you last time that the name Barabbas means son of a father. And over the years, many men have written uh, extensively on this scene and this person and have uh, pointed out that uh, while Barabbas is a real person of history, uh, he's also a representative type of all the sons of fathers. Uh, he, he's like us. He's just like us, all the men have ever been born. Donald Gray, Donald Gray Barnhouse, who was... Uh, a one-time pastor of 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia before James Boyce. Some of you are perhaps familiar with James Boyce. He was a longtime pastor there. Philip Ryken came after him. Uh, He he says this. It's a long quote, but I think it's worthy of our uh, our consideration. This is Barnhouse. He says, We are all of Adam's race. We have been bound over for our sedition against God. We are robbers of his glory, murderers of our souls and the souls of others. We find ourselves bound in the darksome prison house of sin. We feel in our hearts that we merit the sentence that has been announced to us, and we await with trembling the time of judgment. He goes on, he says, The Roman soldiers had stopped the riot and taken Barabbas. His blood guiltiness was established. He was flung into a cell and there to wait the moment of his death. A man who is to be hanged has difficulty keeping his hands away from his throat where the rope is soon to choke him. Barnhouse says, I've been told by a chaplain in a prison where men are executed in a gas chamber that the condemned practice long breathing and sometimes will hold their breath until it seems their eyes will pop out from their sockets. They know they're going to be put into a gas chamber and that they will hear a little hissing sound of the incoming death, that the breath they are now forcing into their lungs will be the last they shall ever know. They will hold on and on, straining at the uh, thongs that uh, tie them to the chair until they are forced by the inexorable uh, inex- uh, law of breathing to uh, exhale the last breath to contain pure oxygen and intake the death that floats around them. Barnhouse says, Barabbas must have looked at the palms of his hands and wondered. 
what it would feel like to have nails ripping through them. He must have remembered the scenes of crucifixion and death and the slow agony of the victims who suffered at times for days or two uh, uh, before the merciful death came to release them. He must have awakened with a, a start if he heard uh, any hammering in the jail. His mind must have anticipated the sound of clanging hammers that would bring death near to him. And then in prison, he heard the vague murmuring of the crowd that roared outside like the murmur of a troublesome sea. He thinks he hears his own name. He can tell there are angry cries and fear arises in his heart. And then he hears the sound of the key in the lock and the jailer comes to him and releases him from the chain that is round about him. He must have thought his time had come. But the jailer takes him to the door and tells him that he is free. In his stupefaction, he moves towards the crowd. There's a little welcome for him, senses a deep preoccupation of the people. If he meets one of his old companions in the crowd, he is greeted with but a moment's word, and then the hears a surging roar, or he hears the surging roar, crucify him, crucify him. He asks, what is going on? Give me the lowdown. He would be briefly answered that the roar is against Jesus, that he is to be crucified, and the crowd has cried out for the release of Barabbas. Stunned, he walks near to the center of the scene and sees a man who is to die in his place. Finally, the procession begins towards Golgotha. He follows and sees Jesus falling, falling to the weight of the cross and sees Simon the Cyrene pressed by the soldiers to fall in line and carry the cross, and finally they arrive at Calvary. What must have been his thoughts? He hears the echoing blows of the hammer, striking the nails, and looks down at his own hands. He had thought that this would be his day. He had thought that the nails would tear his flesh. And there he is breathing the air of springtime and looking at the dark cloud that is gathering in the sky. Does he say those hammer blows were meant for me, but he is dying in my place? He could have said that in the literal truth that day. The cross is lifted up, and he sees the silhouette against the sky. The sun grows dark and hears voices that come to him like thunder. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. The centurion passes near him, and see, uh, seeing the look upon the face, his face says, this truly was the Son of God. And Barabbas, more than ever before, looks with wonder and amazement at this man who is dying for him. There comes a cry, it is finished. And a little while later, he sees the soldiers take down the body and put it into a temporary grave. He goes back to the city, and all the little things that he had expected to see no more come before his eyes with freshness and a new creation. He took my place. Jesus took my place. They released me, Barabbas, who deserved to die. And then he crucified Jesus instead of me. He took my place. He died instead of me. Barnhouse concludes, Barabbas is the only man in the world who could say that Jesus took his physical place. But I can say that Jesus Christ took my spiritual place. For it was I who deserved to die. It was I who deserved that wrath of God that should be poured out upon me. I deserved the eternal uh, punishment of the lake of fire. He was delivered up for my offenses. He was handed over to judgment because of my sin. 
This is why he says, why we speak of the substitutionary atonement of Christ. Christ is my substitute. He was satisfying the deaths of divine justice and holiness against my sin. That's why I can say that Christianity can be experienced in three phrases. I deserve hell. Jesus took my hell. There is nothing therefore left for me but his heaven. Now it's a little imaginative, no doubt, and somewhat speculative to exactly what Barabbas' response would have been to the whole thing. But nonetheless, an innocent man is going to be executed and the guilty is going to be let go free, confirming the spiritual truth in 1 Corinthians 2, 5, or 2, or 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21, that Paul speaks of, and we speak of this pulp, from this pulpit often. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Matthew chapter 27, verse 17, When therefore they gathered together, Pilate said to them, Whom do you want me to release to you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called the Christ? For he knew because of envy they had delivered him up. The chief priests and the elders persuaded the multitude to ask for Barabbas and to put Jesus to death. The governor answered and said to them, To which of these two do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas. And Pilate said to them, What shall I do with Jesus, who is called Christ? And they said, Let him be crucified. And he said, What evil has he done? Again, another affirmation of the sinlessness, the guiltlessness, the innocence of the person of Christ, his complete perfection. What has he done? What evil has he done? But they kept shouting out the more, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. Now on this day in history, when Barabbas hears uh, the name, his name called from his cell, he has a choice. He can heed the call and come forward and receive the pardon that has been granted to him undeservedly, unexpectedly, and be free, or he can reject it. It would, of course, be the utmost height of foolishness if Barabbas would have fought the soldiers who attempted to release him and remove him from his chains and set him free from the prison. We, we can scarce imagine such a Response Again, it would be the height of utter absurdity. Yet sadly, it's the same response that many, if not most, give when they hear of the substitutionary atonement of the Lord Jesus Christ. They reject the pardon. A pardon from sin, a pardon from death, a pardon from uh, eternal condemnation is something that cannot be compelled upon another person. It has to be received freely as the gift that it is. For the reality of the truth is every man is going to be summoned before the great God of the universe to stand before his tribunal of final judgment. And it is only those who have repented and placed their faith in Christ who have had their sin covered by the shed blood of the perfect Passover lamb who have freely taken that pardon of God's grace, who will hear, not guilty, there is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. All the rest, who rejected God's great gift of forgiveness and pardon of sin through His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, will be justly condemned forever. In fact, Jesus says, listen, in fact, Jesus says, John 3 and 18 He who believes in him is not judged. 
he who does not believe has been judged already because he's not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. All unrepentant men, all unrepentant women stand guilty before God, eternally guilty, awaiting the execution of the sentence of condemnation forever, experiencing God's unrelenting wrath and torment in a place of literal fire that is never quenched because they have despised the Holy and the Righteous One. They have failed to believe upon the name of the only begotten Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. And every man who desires to escape this final judgment can do so freely as a gift of God's grace. But if you want to escape condemnation and eternal judgment, then you must respond to the divine summons. Repent of your sin. Turn away from your sin. Come to Christ. And then you will be able to sing bearing shame and scoffing root. In my place condemned he stood, sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah. What a Savior, right? Now back to John. Again, Pilate lacks the intestinal fortitude to do the right thing. Instead of setting Jesus free, whom he knows is innocent, he's going to put forth this faulty idea. He finds himself trapped by the fickleness of the the wicked crowd, his plans got to utterly fail. Again, John eighteen thirty nine. you have a custom that I should release someone for you on the Passover. Do you wish that I should release for you, the king of the Jew, or for you the king of the Jews? Therefore they cried out again, saying, not this man, but Barabbas. Again, Barabbas is a robber. The crowd continues to shout out the horror of their wicked hearts, screaming out concerning Jesus, let him be crucified. I mean, it's absolute depravity on display, absolute wickedness on display, demanding the murder of the Lord Jesus Christ. So, therefore, any of this nonsensical talk that you often hear uh, uh, about the so-called inherent goodness of man, the humanity of man, uh, that should be done away with forever because there is none. Mankind is absolutely, radically, to the core of his being, depraved, wicked. Why does the world have such animosity and hatred towards the person of Jesus Christ? I've told you, because Jesus is holy, he's pure, he's innocent. He's undefiled, and men are all wicked, evil. Sinners accountable to God. They, they reject Christ because their deeds are evil, and Jesus exposes men. That's the issue. Pilate's running out of options. He wants to let Jesus go. The crowd is growing. The crowd is growing for the crying out for his murder. So he has one last desperate attempt to appease the crowd. Again, he wants to awaken the pity of the crowd uh, towards Jesus. Chapter 19, verse 1. Again, we looked at this, but, but I need to move through it again. John 19, 1. Then Pilate therefore took Jesus and scourged him. Now I told you that scourging was such a horrific uh, punishment. A person often died before they were taken to be executed. The flesh lacerated, muscles, internal organs at times exposed. And Pilate is guilty of brutally punishing a man whom he's already declared to be innocent. Again, human depravity is on full display. Human depravity that delights in inflicting pain on another human being, especially one whom everyone knows is innocent, one who has done no wrong. And remember that Christ has already been beaten and slapped 
before he's gotten even to this point, he's been beaten and slapped and spat upon. They spat in his face. The religious leaders of Israel did that to him during the nighttime trial, Matthew 26, verse 67. They spat in his face and beat him with their fists. And others slapped him and said, Prophesy to us, you Christ, who is the one who hit you? The ultimate human indignity is to be spat upon. There is no greater personal indignity or personal insult than to be spat upon. And the Jewish religious leaders spat in the face of the Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, even before the scourging, his face is bruised, it's swollen, it's covered in spittle. Now his body's lacerated. He's bleeding profusely from the scourging. He's probably in shock. And then they decide to have a little quote-unquote fun with him. Verse 2. The soldiers wove a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. And they began to come up to him and say, Hail, King of the Jews, and to give him blows in the face. The soldiers are most likely not Italian. Uh, more likely they're Syrian. Because Rome often used Syrian uh, in, uh, in, in this area because they could speak Aramaic, which is the common uh, language there in Israel. So the Roman, these uh, Roman soldiers were genuinely conscripted into the Roman army out of the country from which Rome uh, occupied. One writer calls them mercenary scum and the dregs of the provinces. Jews were accept, uh, exempted from service in the Roman army. They wouldn't have served uh, even if they could. They despised the Romans so much. They wove a crown of thorns and they put it on his head. Again, it's just another intentional step of inflicting pain upon the prisoner. Uh, again, these say that sadistic soldiers are just mocking Christ. Now, we don't know exactly what kind of plant or bush it was uh, to make the crown of thorns, uh, but the thorns of this plant pierced his skin on, on his head, causing him to uh, bleed excessively. You know that if you've ever cut your face or cut your head, there's so many little subcutaneous blood vessels that it tends to bleed profusely when cut. So he's bleeding from the scourging. He's bleeding from the crown of thorns that no doubt was crushed down upon his head. The pain from that would be immense. And Christ is suffering physically in a dramatic fashion before he even gets to the cross. Everything these soldiers do to him is out of ignorance. There's nothing more for them just an act of mindless cruelty. Soldiers hate the Jews. And Jesus is just another Jewish prisoner to them. He claims to be a king, so obviously maybe he's got some kind of mental derangement. Uh, They don't care. He's just worthy to be mocked, worthy to be ridiculed, worthy to be the recipient of their sadistic cruelty. Verse 4, Pilate came out again and said to them, Behold, I am bringing him out to you that you may know I find no guilt in him. Therefore Jesus came out wearing a crown of thorns and a purple robe, and Pilate said to them, Behold the man. Again, basically, isn't that enough? Look at him. Isn't that enough? The prophet Isaiah provides for us a graphic description of the outward appearance of the Lord Jesus after he had undergone scourging. 
Isaiah 52, verse 14. His appearance was marred more than any man, and his form more than the sons of men. The New English translation, Isaiah 52, verse 14. Just as we were horrified by the sight of you, he was so disfigured, he no longer looked like a man. Christ's body is so mangled, disfigured by the beating, by the scourging. The blood-soaked Jesus has lacerations everywhere. He's beaten so badly he doesn't even look like a man. He is nearly unrecognizable. But sadly, there's more to come. Now again, realize that Jesus has the power to stop this whole thing at any point. Could have stopped the mocking, could have stopped the pain, could have stopped the torment, could have stopped the, the suffering that he has already endured. And the great humiliation and suffering that he's about to undertake as he goes to the cross, but he does not. He would not. Because he's come into this world to bear the sin of the world. And he's come so willingly, and he's come into this world out of love to do that very thing, to be our substitute. So the Lord Jesus doesn't stop all this wicked abuse because he's completely resigned to do the will of the Father for the redemption of mankind. He's willing to allow himself to be abused in the most painful and humiliating fashions, again, out of love. That's why the author of the book of Hebrews says, Consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, or really disregarding the shame. For the joy setting before him, enduring the cross, he disregarded the shame. He didn't think any of thing of it. He thought little of it. Because he knew what he was doing was going to provide forgiveness of sin for all who would repent and believe upon him. And he also knew that the eternal plans of God were, were, were right on schedule because he said this is what was going to happen. Matthew 20, verse 18, Christ speaking, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and will deliver him to the Gentiles to mock and scourge and crucify him, and on the third day he will be raised up. Again, not only did Jesus know this was going to happen to him, uh, again, I remind you, he willingly embraces it. Even earlier in the book of Matthew, Matthew chapter 16, uh, he told his disciples, Matthew 16, verse 21, from that time Jesus Christ began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. He must go to Jerusalem because he has an appointment to keep. So again, the glory of Christ is on display against the backdrop of the depravity of wicked men and devils. It's Christ who is despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows, a man acquainted with grief, like one whom men hide their face from. He was despised and we would not esteem him. The glory of Christ is on display. And can you imagine what it is like this day, right now, for all of those men, all of the so-called religious leaders of Israel, 
who spat in the face of Jesus Christ, the torment that they are enduring presently and will endure for all eternity. Can you imagine the torment that they are enduring right now? Because the truth is that man, who's created in the image of God, once a man is born, man lives forever. Men don't go out of existence at death. That's a lie of the devil and the false hope of the unbeliever. Eternity awaits all men. And listen to me. It doesn't matter whether or not you believe that. Eternity awaits all men. It doesn't change the fact whether or not you believe that fact because you are not the source of reality. You are not the source of truth. God and his word is. And this is a warning to take the condition of your soul seriously. Once a man is born, he lives forever. The destination of that forever eternity depends on what he has done in time with the person of Jesus Christ and nothing else. So can you imagine what it's like for every man who spits in the face of the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who refuses the call for pardon, who despises his sacrifice, rejecting all that Christ willingly suffered in order to redeem humanity from the penalty of sin? The writer of the book of Hebrews gives us a little bit of a picture. He says, how much severe punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know him who says, vengeance is mine, I will repay, and again the Lord will judge his people. And then he says, it's a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Jesus, therefore, came out wearing a crown of thorns and a purple robe, and Pilate said to them, Behold the man. Verse 6, When therefore the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, saying, Crucify, crucify. And Pilate said to them, Take him yourself and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. And again, another proclamation of the innocence of Christ. Jesus has committed no crime. Yet Pilate has allowed him to be brutalized. The wickedness of Pilate, he cares nothing about Jesus. He only cares for his own, <coughs> excuse me, his own safety, his own security, the security of his own job. Pilate has a responsibility to do the right thing, to bring justice to this man, Jesus, but he utterly fails in that responsibility. He knows Jesus is innocent, and he's going to allow him to be ter- terribly uh, mistreated, tortured, and then he's going to allow him to be murdered. Therefore, the chief priests and the officers Saw him, they cried out, saying, Crucify, crucify. Pilate said, Take him yourself. Crucify him yourself, for I find no guilt in him. So again, Pilate's continually declaring the innocence of Christ. And Pilate really hates the Jews. He hates the Jews in general, but he really hates the Jews who are causing him so much trouble with this issue. But at the same time, he fears them. Because he can't afford to have another report, a negative report, uh, of, uh, sent back to, to Caesar of his mistreatment of them. He can't afford uh, an accusation that is soft on rebels, that uh, he's freed a man who's continually proclaimed himself uh, as a king and encouraged sedition. 
Uh, again, he wants to let Jesus go, but he fears in doing so is going to cause him much trouble. Pilate said, take him yourself, crucify him. I find no guilt in him. And as I told you, there's kind of a sense of indignation, I think, and frustration in, in the tone, the voice of Pilate. You take him. You do it. Right? You take him. You crucify him. Verse 7, the Jews answered, we have a law that by that law he ought to die because he made himself out to be the son of God. Again, they're still charging him with blasphemy, right? The law that they're referring to comes out of Leviticus 24, verse 16, that a blasphemer must be executed. A man who claims himself to be God is a blasphemer, but in the case of Jesus, it's not blasphemy, it's the truth. Jesus is God come in the flesh. And this is the final rejection of the Jewish religious leaders of Israel of their Messiah. They have no excuse for their rejection. The evidence is overwhelming that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. They reject him again out of the darkness of their own wicked heart. They reject Christ because they love their sin. And Jesus exposes them because Jesus is holy, innocent, righteous. They are unholy. They are unrighteous. Verse 8, when Pilate therefore heard the statement, he was more afraid. The more afraid. When Jesus heard, or when Pilate heard the statement, he was the more afraid. Now, uh, Pilate gets a little additional information to this whole scene here. Uh, This innocent man claims to be the Son of God. And then he becomes very much more afraid. It's a phobia, uh, frightened to the point of being terrified uh, to to be put to flight, to run. Again, Pilate's terrified. Now, Now, terrified of what? Well, we already know he's terrified of Caesar. He's terrified of the crowds and their power over him. But what Matthew does is brings in a little bit more information for us. Matthew 27, verse 19, we're told that when Pilate was trying to consider what to do with Jesus, Matthew 27, verse 19, while he was sitting in the judgment seat, his wife sent to him saying, have nothing to do with this righteous man. Speaking of Jesus, have nothing to do with this righteous man. Last night I suffered greatly in a dream because of him. Now that's interesting. Because Pilate's wife, as I told you, she's not anything, anything less but a woman of virtue. But even she can see the righteousness, the innocence, the faultlessness, the guiltlessness of the person of Jesus Christ. She has a dream about him. She has a dream about that righteous man. And she suffers greatly in her dreams because of him. So Pilate has all of this information. And on top of that, I think he's suffering, struggling with his guilty conscience. When Pilate therefore heard this statement, again, what statement makes him more afraid? The fact that Jesus claimed to be the Son of God. Pilate panics. Perhaps starts to wonder, is this man in front of him, is he one that has divine powers? Pilate, like many people at the time, and many Romans, were superstitious. Pilate has to be thinking, could it be true that this prisoner is one of the gods? Is it true that this prisoner perhaps is one of the children of the gods? Perhaps that's why my wife was so utterly terrified in her dream and and begged me to have nothing to do with this righteous man. Again, Pilate is shaken, much more afraid. Now, J.C. Ryle points out that Pilate, as the Roman governor, uh, who was charged to keep order in this turbulent, uh, troublesome province, uh, no doubt he must have spies everywhere. So he knew everything that was going on in Judea. 
At some point, he must have heard in the last three years, he must have heard of the accounts of Jesus and his ministry, his power over the sick, over the dead, and perhaps even heard of Jesus raising Lazarus of Bethany within the last week or so, which is just a short walk outside the city of Jerusalem. So it may well be that this entire case brought before him by the Jews caused him much anxiety from the first because he'd heard so much about this man. And then he hears that Jesus has made the claim to be the Son of God. Now he's even more afraid, even more alarmed. Verse 9. He entered into the praetorium again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? Now it's a question that has nothing to do with the physical location of Jesus, or his earthly, from an earthly perspective, because he already knows he's from Galilee. That's why he sent him over to here. Where are you from? He's trying to discern Jesus' nature. He wants to know if Jesus is human or if he comes from the realm of the gods. You ask, do people really believe in these times that uh, the gods could visit men? And the answer is absolutely yes. Think about it. Acts chapter 14. Paul's in Iconium. He heals a man. Acts 14, 11, When the multitude saw that what Paul had done, they raised their voices, saying in the Lyconium language, The gods have become like men and have come down to us. And they began calling Barnabas Zeus and Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker. So people at the time believed it was true that the gods could come and visit men. And again, the Romans were so caught up with mythology and superstition. Remember also Acts 28. Paul's bitten by that poisonous serpent. And when he lands on the island of Malta, he shakes the serpent off of his Hand, Acts 28, verse 6, they were expecting that he was about to swell up and suddenly fall down dead, but after they waited a long time and saw nothing unusual happen to him, they changed their minds and began to say he was a god. Pilate entered into the praetorium again and said to Jesus, where are you from? And John says, Jesus gave him no answer. Why does Jesus not speak? Now, I don't know exactly because the text doesn't tell us, but you can make some assumptions. We know back in chapter 18, Jesus acknowledged the fact that he was a king before Pilate. And Jesus had told Pilate that his kingdom was not of this realm, not of this world, that he had come, listen, into this world to bear witness to the truth. Pilate cynically replies, what is truth? And Jesus makes the statement, everyone who is true, everyone is of the truth, here's my voice. What is truth? I don't know. But I would suggest to you it's probably not good when Jesus stops talking. Because the truth is God's grace has its limits. Genesis chapter 6, God says, My spirit will not always strive with man. And then God drowned the entire world, save those people, those few who took refuge in the ark. Christ knows Pilate's heart. He knows the hardness of Pilate's heart. Pilate had heard the truth from the person of truth himself, the Lord Jesus Christ, and he rejected it. And the Bible teaches that when men continually reject the truth, God rejects rejects them as an act of judicial judgment. Pilate said to Jesus, where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. Pilate deserved no answer. Pilate had forfeited his 
right to any further revelation. Pilate had been told plainly the nature of the Lord's kingdom and the purpose of the Lord's coming into the world, and Pilate had confessed publicly the innocence of Jesus numerous times. All of God's interaction with us is nothing but mercy. No man deserves to hear the gospel. The gospel comes as a proclamation of God's kindness and truth, his love, compassion for men. Nobody deserves to hear it once. Listen to me, let alone more than once. And you hear the gospel once and you refuse it. You're playing with a pretty dangerous situation with your soul because Jesus Christ says that you're guilty already. Pilate knew the nature of the Lord's kingdom. It wasn't from this realm. He'd come into the world. He was a proclamation to bring the truth. Yet with the light and the knowledge that Pilate had, he treated the Lord with flagrant injustice. It was Pilate who caused Jesus to be scourged. It was Pilate who allowed Jesus to be treated with the vilest indignities by the soldiers. It was Pilate that allowed him to be held up to scorn. And all along the way, Pilate knew Jesus was innocent. Pilate had sent away his opportunities. He'd send away his opportunities. He'd send away his mercies, God's mercies towards him. He turned a deaf ear to the cry of his own conscience. And the Lord would have nothing more to say to him. He gave him no answer. Verse 10, Pilate therefore said to him, Do you not speak to me? Do you not know that I have the authority to release you and I have the authority to crucify you? Now, he may have had the authority to release him, but he certainly didn't have the courage to do so, right? But the question that Pilate asked points out to the fact that although he tried desperately to avoid making the decision, he knew deep down he had a responsibility to do so. He knew down deep inside him he had the responsibility to do the right thing, and he didn't do it. Jesus breaks his silence, verse 11. Jesus answered, You would have no authority over me unless it had been given you from above. For this reason, he who delivered me up to you has the greater sin. Now, Jesus' statement here, again, is an affirmation of the sovereignty of God, that even with the, uh, even the most wicked, heinous acts of evil men, they can't circumvent uh, the sovereign plans and purposes of God. Pilate is responsible for his wickedness. Pilate is responsible for his cowardice. Uh, Pilate is, a, is a, a responsible moral agent, but Pilate is not in control of the situation. God is. And when confronted with the absolute evil on a personal level, Christ took comfort and solace in the fact that his heavenly Father superintended affairs of life, affairs of a wicked world against him. And I would contend as we keep our eyes on Christ, not the wicked world, Satan is not in control of this wicked world. God is. And God is working out his sovereign purposes in time, even through evil men who create acts of a great evil. God is sovereign. Christ is going to be exalted. That's the plan of the universe. From before the foundation of the world, all through time, through the new heavens and the new earth, Christ, for all eternity, 
is the focus. Things are not out of control. Stop listening to the news. Open your Bible. Jesus answered, you'd have no authority over me unless it had been granted you from above. So again, then he says, for this reason, he who delivered me up to you has the greater sin. Now, some people think that he that is referring to is Judas because he betrayed him, but it can't can't be Judas. Uh, Judas betrayed him, no doubt, but Judas did not deliver him up to Pilate. So probably the he that Jesus is referring to is Caiaphas, the high priest who instigated the murder of, of Jesus, uh, and, and put Pilate in a position to make a judicial decision against him. Maybe uh, Jesus is referring even to the entire Sanhedrin, uh, the Jewish Supreme Court, which Caiaphas is a part of. They all had a greater uh, guilt and responsibility. So the Caiaphas and the Jewish religious leaders, the Sanhedrin, uh, again, they have seen, they have heard the overwhelming evidence uh, uh, concerning the person of Jesus Christ. They knew, listen, they knew he was no mere man. No mere man raises people from the dead. No mere man gives sight to the blind. No mere man exercises power over the physical realm, the supernatural realm. They knew it. They'd seen his divine power. Yet they rejected him. They rejected him in cold blood. They desired his death. Now, Pilate perhaps had not seen any of that. However, Pilate still stands guilty, not to the extent as the others, but again, the Jews really bear the heavier responsibility, the greater weight of the sin against Jesus. Pilate is only going to be the instrument of death that the Jews are driving or the Jews are uh, compelling forward, forcing forward. Verse 12. As a result of this, Pilate made efforts to release him. Now again, Pilate knows Jesus is not worthy of death. He, he's done nothing wrong. <clears throat> Pilate made efforts to release him. We're not told exactly what he did, uh, but he intensifies his efforts somehow to release Jesus, but it's too late. It's too late. The Jews cried out, saying, If you release this man, you're no friend of Caesar. Everyone who makes himself out to be a king opposes Caesar. Again, another act of hypocrisy by the Jewish religious leaders because, again, they hated the Romans. They hated the Romans. They hated the Romans' rule over them. And, and, and certainly they themselves were not friends of Caesar. But again, Pilate can't <clears throat> risk uh, the implied threat to having him reported back to the emperor uh, that he has released a revolutionary or an insurrectionist, uh, someone who's a threat to Rome's rule. G.C. Ryle puts a comment here at this point. He says, it's hard to say which is the more wretched and contemptible at this point in the story. Pilate trampling down his own conscience to avoid the possible displeasure of, the, of an earthly monarch or the Jews pretending to care for Caesar's interests and warning Pilate not to do anything unfriendly to him. Ralph says it's a sad exhibition of cowardice on the one side and duplicity on the other. And the whole result was a formula for murder. And, and notice the vacillation here that's going on between the Jewish religious uh, Religious leaders, they keep going back and forth, right? Uh, Jesus is an insurrectionist. Jesus is a blasphemer. Jesus is an insurrectionist. They're going back and forth because they're making the whole thing up. Because Jesus is innocent. Committed no crime. Again, he's done absolutely nothing worthy of death. Verse 13. When Pilate therefore heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat of the place called the pavement, but in Hebrew, Gabbatha. At this point, Pilate is defeated. This weak, vacillating man. And again, in another act of irony, he's going to sit in judgment over 
this one whom the Father has granted all judgment to, John 5 and 22. And one day, Pilate's going to stand before this same man, <clears throat> the Lord Jesus Christ, and Christ will pass eternal judgment upon him. So at this point in the story, Pilate knows he cannot release Jesus. If he does so, riot's going to break out. And the Jews are going to go back to, to Caesar and have a negative report, and he can't afford that to happen. Verse 14, that was the day of the preparation for the Passover. It's Friday. Passover doesn't start until <clears throat> Friday night at sundown. It's the day of preparation for the Judean Jews, the Galilean Jews, and the north had it the night before. It's Friday morning. Then he says it's about the sixth hour. So it's approaching noon. Now some people mistakenly believe there's an error in the text between John's account and Mark's account. <clears throat> because uh, Mark said Jesus was crucified the third hour. That would be around 9 a.m. But what you need to remember is this is the day before clocks. This is the day before wristwatches. This is the day before any kind of precise timekeeping devices. Therefore, people estimated time in three-hour blocks. So it's completely legitimate to estimate time uh, somewhere between 9 and noon. Well, one person, when you come to somewhere between 9 and noon, so one person may come and say, it was in the third hour, and, and around 9 a.m., and it's completely legitimate for someone to say it was about the sixth hour. Uh, again, three-hour blocks of time. There's no, there's no error. It, it's just a different day and time in which we live. It was the day of preparation for the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. And he said to the Jews, Behold your king. Again, more mockery, more sarcasm. Behold the bloody, beaten Lord Jesus. Verse 15, Therefore they cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. That is the final rejection of the true king of Israel, the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. And with that final rejection, the Jewish, leaders, Jewish religious leaders have cut themselves off from all hope. And in another act of irony, those who falsely accuse Jesus of blasphemy, they commit blasphemy themselves since Jesus is the Christ. He is the Messiah. He is the true King of Israel. Therefore, they reject the true King of Israel, the King of glory, the innocent Lord Jesus Christ, and these wicked men choose for themselves another one like them. He was just as wicked, Caesar. To rule over them, because that's the way it is with all men who sit in darkness. They refuse the lordship of Jesus Christ because men love their sin. Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priest answered, We have no king but Caesar. Matthew, in his account of the story, says Matthew 27, verse 24, when Pilate saw that he was accomplishing nothing, but rather a riot was starting, he took water and washed his hands in front of the multitude, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. Well, it's not really true. Pilate's now more guilty than he's ever been. He knows Jesus is innocent. And he won't defend him. He won't see the justice. He will not see the justice is carried out in Jesus' case. He will not acquit the innocent man, and he has a responsibility, an obligation, and a duty to do so. But rather, he's going to punish and condemn to death an innocent man. In fact, the only innocent man that ever walked the planet, the only righteous man who ever lived, the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Pilate can wash his hands all he wants, but he can't wash away the guilt of his sin. Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priest answered, We have no king but Caesar. It's interesting, Pilate doesn't even pronounce the final sentence. The crowd does. Therefore they cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. Verse 16, so they delivered him to them to be delivered him to them to be crucified. What a sad scene. What a pathetic scene. And here we stand right at the foot of the cross. And crucifixion was bloody and ugly and vulgar. An absolutely horrific event beyond repulsion. Even for the Romans, crucifixion was seen as an abomination. One of the most disgraceful and most cruel instruments of death ever invented. Reserved only for slaves and the worst of criminals, never applied to a Roman citizen. Crucifixion has been described as the most cruel and worst possible fate. Another, the death of a thousand deaths. One commentator reports this. He said, It is on record that a soldier once said of all the awful sounds human ears could be forced to listen to, the most terrible out of hell were those pitiable cries in the solemn silence of the midnight from the lonely hill where crucified men were hanging in agonies out of which they could not even die while breath still remained. And it's to the cross that our blessed Lord Jesus Christ is going to go. The cross is the apex of redemptive history, the focal point of God's eternal plan of salvation. And Christ is going to bear the sins of the world and provide eternal salvation to everyone who believes upon him. From God's side, it's the greatest act of expression of redemptive love, mercy, grace, and kindness the world has ever seen or ever can know. The substitutionary death of the Lord Jesus Christ. From man's side, the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ is the greatest act of wickedness and evil this fallen world has ever committed. The greatest act of ultimate, the greatest act and the ultimate expression of human depravity. The depraved evil men murder the innocent Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The question that Pilate asks is the question that still rings down through the ages that all men face, what shall I do with Jesus who's called the Christ? And repeatedly through this series, I've said every man has to deal with the person of Jesus Christ, and there are only two options. Either you stand with the rejectors of the Lord Jesus Christ who spat in his face and receive eternal condemnation, or you fall before him and worship him, acknowledging him as Lord and Savior and become saved from the wrath to come. Pilate tried to play the middle, which Jesus says no man can do. Jesus, Matthew 12, verse 30, he who is not with me is against me. He who does not gather with me scatters. You cannot be neutral with the person of Jesus Christ. Pilate tried to play the middle Pilate, out of fear, men sided with the rejectors of the Lord Jesus Christ, and he's paying for that, et- that error eternally. That's why the writer of the book of Proverbs says, Proverbs twenty nine twenty five, the fear of man brings a snare. Pilate had a privileged position, stood right next to the king of the universe. 
Think about that. He stood right next to the king of the universe. The word of truth incarnate. And he rejected him. Pilate finds himself in the very same category as Judas, who lived with the Savior for three years and betrayed him. And the question, again, that goes out for all of you who are in the room listening or on, on the live stream is, what will you do with Jesus Christ? You better choose wisely. Repent of your sin. Come to Christ. This day, before it's too late. Lord willing, next time we'll take up the events surrounding the cross. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we're thankful for this compelling look at Christ as he is headed towards the cross and this final interaction with Pilate and these wicked men. And we stand amazed at you and our God and Christ and his compassion. Stand amazed at his mercy and grace. Help us, our Lord, to keep our focus on Christ. Help us again to have our love for you and our love for the Savior increase. Help us to have great confidence and hope in you, not a fallen world, but upon you, the sovereign, the one who is in control of all things, the one who is working all things out to your glorious plan and purposes for the exaltation of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, the redemption of men whom you love. Bless us as we have set under the teaching of your word, and may we take your truth and apply it in our lives. I pray in Christ's name. Amen.